Do you know the author? No, I don't, and I don't know the title either. But it's a blue book, and it kind of gives the whole story. You know. I think we can help you. Have you a real love of books and learning? When you have these two important qualifications, love for books and love for people, you may well consider the vocation of a librarian. Episode 36, the May 2012 episode of Adventures in Library Instruction. My name is Anna Vanskoik, and I am a part-time reference librarian for a county library system in New Jersey. And today, of course, I have our regulars. I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves first, which, uh, let's start with you, Rachel. Okay. Hi, I'm Rachel Borchard. I'm the science librarian at American University in Washington, D.C., and to my made-up left is Jason. Hi, everybody. This is Jason. I'm the communication librarian at Georgia State in Atlanta. And we are very excited today. I mean, I'm always excited to talk to Jason and Rachel, but today we have a special guest, Char Booth, who is the Instruction Services Manager and e-learning librarian at Claremont College's Library. Phew, that is quite a title there, Char. <laughs> I know, tell me about it. I have to say it all the time. <laughs> Let's just say Char does everything at Claremont College's library. Um, well, maybe not all of it, but a lot. Uh, Char, we, what happened was, this is, this is what happened. Here's the situation. Jason, Rachel, and I started, that's my little beastie boys. Um, <laughs> um, that's DJ Jazzy Jeff, Anna. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Oh, okay. you just lost so much cred. Like, yeah, I had any cred to lose. I totally didn't catch it, though. I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay. What happened was, is we started to read um, Char's book. Char had just recently, I guess it was last year, Char, is that right? The book, um, Reflective Teaching, Effective Learning, Instructional Literacy for Library Educators. And she actually won an award for this book in this pet just earlier this year at the ACRL Rockman Publication of the Year Award, which I love the name Rockman because it's like rock on, <laughs> yeah. which word. is congratulations, Char, because we, we all started to read it and the excitement and um, ideas and creativity were just palpable. I mean, we were all about ready to explode. We were just, it was, it was, it was a, a fabulous read for all of us and then we started to talk about it and then we all decided to get a little gutsy and ask you to come on to talk to you with you about the book and so we're very excited that you are here to join us um i can't even i don't even know where to start i really i feel like i'm a, a giddy schoolgirl right now i can't even contain myself well, as long as you don't explode i guess <laughs> no thank you so much like it's really uh, it's super humbling and awesome to be on the show and i'm I, i'm always still kind of flabbergasted that i wrote a book and then that people read it so this will be really interesting for me 
it's it's a terrific book seriously um i i think if you're if you're interested enough in library instruction to be listening to this podcast i think you should definitely pick it up and make sure that your library owns a copy for sure um i'm doing a uh, one of the the workshops that i do continuing ed workshops for librarians uh for simmons college online and uh, i'm co-teaching it with sarah steiner and it's called um instruction librarian boot camp and i i highly recommended it to all of the participants in my workshop as well so yeah terrific book and we'll we'll talk about it for the next hour or so we'll talk about why, what we all like about it. Um, do you want to maybe, um, uh, Char, just kind of uh, introduce us to the book for people who haven't read it and just kind of tell us what what it's about and what you were trying to do with it, and then we'll just kind of discuss from there? Sure, um, I'm happy to. It's, it's kind of, the best way I can characterize the book is my own attempt to confront how hard it was for me to learn how to teach in the library. Um, so it's kind of like, a personal journey through a bunch of strategies that I accumulated over time and learned from others. And just the, the, the entire idea of writing it was to codify practical and reflective or kind of more, um, maybe you could call them emotional approaches to teaching that can really help support that process. So many librarians teach, so many librarians train, but we receive very, very little instruction on how to do so. And it creates a lot of anxiety. I think, um, when we realize that we have to do it, we, we tend to kind of spaz out, you know, and go far and then like, um, have a lot of, uh, <laughs> have a lot of unfortunate experiences. That's certainly kind of what happened to me. So I thought, all right, so instead of, instead of just like sitting back and getting run over, how can I make this a more productive process? And also I really love to write. Um, so it just became kind of a long form, uh, journey in, trying to come up with strategies that could be usable by others. And I do it in two, kind of in two halves. There's a, the first half of the book focuses on um, this idea of instructional literacy. So most of the time what teaching librarians hear is information literacy. That's what we do. We, we, you know, teach people how to use and interpret and evaluate information. Well, that's great, except for that's the content of what we teach, not how we teach it. Um, so I think that a lot of us come into the field with knowledge of what we want to convey, but not very much um, skill in pedagogy or praxis. So um, instructional literacy consists of a couple of different things. Reflective practice being strategies that you can use kind of in the moment to understand the impact that you're having. And as a teacher, then um, instructional theory and educational te technology, two other kind of important areas, Finally, instructional design, which is like a systematic uh, framework for planning and executing instruction, which is the second half of the book, kind of lays that model out for people uh, in some detail. Perhaps too much detail. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's what it's about. Well, I thought it was it was really interesting timing for me personally to have discovered your book because this whole idea of um, uh, reflection, self-reflection and mindfulness in teaching had come up for me in, in a couple of different conversations right around the same time, um, you know, and it, it's something that we get so little chance to do is kind of... Uh, you know, we're just so so caught up with day to day stuff that it's really hard to stop and and think about what we're doing and and take part in that. Um, geez, I don't I don't want to sound too 
um, touchy feely about it, but the, the self reflection and the um, uh, the mindfulness aspect of it was really interesting to me. Um, just sort of the the conscious act of thinking about how you teach. Uh, that's that's a bit, I mean I'm vastly oversimplifying but that's that's really a lot of what you're writing about in this book and that was really um, uh, interesting to me and and something that I really needed to discover about when I did so uh, so that was just terrific for me well, One of the I, things that, oh okay. sorry go ahead well I was just gonna say something that I just thought about that I think is really interesting about what you said Jason is it the first reaction of thinking about things like reflective kind of like practice and teaching is to think that it's touchy feely, but it's actually really, really challenging, like really hard. It's kind of a, like a gut wrenching, vulnerable thing to do. And, and so it, yes, it's based in the idea that we have, you know, we have experiences and feelings around instruction, but it's also based in the idea of, you know, I have enough courage to like look myself in the face as I teach. And it's, it's really difficult. Like it's like basically, watching yourself in uh, on a video every time you're doing something and it's it's just like sounds touchy feely ends up being kind of like combat in a way but very very productive yeah and i do i do want to say this this is a really practical book i mean there's lots of really practical exercises in it and uh you i think that you did a great job of taking instructional theory and making it very um uh, very real world based and applying it um in in some very practical ways so uh and that's that's all i meant by i don't want to sound touchy-feely about it because (laughs) i was afraid that i was starting to but this is this is really a very grounded and practical book i think so it's not um sorry go ahead no go ahead I was just going to say it's not it's not a book I, I would normally gravitate towards because theory scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, it's just like you said, it's kind of wrapping your head around it and, and it's hard and I think it's new concepts. Um, but within that, while I was going through it, and Jason said this also, is that um, it kind of gives you these practical exercises to kind of work through those wrapping your head around the theoretical aspects of what we're doing in the classroom. And the other thing is what I thought was interesting is so many times before I start a session, I usually kind of have people talk to people about mapping out a plan, whether it's putting together their Facebook profile or setting up their Skype account or, or whatever they're doing, making their a new web page is to kind of come up with their plan and really think about what are they trying to do and what do they want their end product to be. And I never really did that as a teacher necessarily. <laughs> and this is kind of what this book um, really emphasizes. And it gives you those tools, kind of an arsenal of um, ways to kind of sit down and really think about what you're doing and how you want to get there. I think one of the things that I really loved about it is that you were so willing to put yourself mm-hmm. into the book. Because I, I don't know, I, I'm a very informal person, which has probably come across by now. But you know, like I can read about instruction theory all day and just be like, all right, but I'm not really sure how to take that and go anywhere with it. But you know, like you actually talk about how you use it in your classes and how like after a class, you'll write down notes. And I was like, okay, you know, like I can see this actually working for me. And I think for me, that was the big difference in like having so many aha moments while reading the book. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's really awesome. And I think that one of the things that happened to me when I was trying to learn how to be a better teacher was that the only thing I ever connected with were people's own, like, kind of like praxis stories, what they had done that it, that worked and didn't, that idea of kind of translating the theoretical aspects into a more personal type of practice. And 
in divorce from that, it's it's very abstract and it mm-hmm. tends to be really alienating to read. You know, you're you're like, okay, this is the purview of experts. This is the purview of people who are completely steeped in the conceptual side of instruction or education, and it has no relevance to me. Well, it has to have relevance if it's if it's kind of translated through this this personal lens, and it also gives you license to reject things that don't appeal to you. You know, because if you, I mean, if it's up to you to implement, it's also up to you, up to you to, to uh, reject. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that's great. I'm glad that that came through. Uh, and I will say, on the other ha- half, you did an amazing job of researching this book. Like, you don't really notice it while you're reading it, but then at the end of the chapter, you've got the bibliography, and it's like, holy crap! Like, this is not a Google search <laughs> info literacy. You know, just pull off the top results. Like, you went outside of our information literacy world and pulled in, I don't know, sorry, this is, I'm just really impressed that it's got both like really great grounding for what you say, but then also, so you kind of bring it from the top to top to the, you know, the bottom of the practical, so. Well, man, have I have ever, I have never had to teach myself so many things to do, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because I was just like, oh, I have all these hunches and I I know all this kind of stuff, kind of, but now I've got to write a book, which assumes some sort of expertise which is a very uncomfortable place for someone as kind of like you know progressive and radical as I am to just be like here I'm going to teach you this stuff so like I have to you know I mean it I have to really know my stuff and also be open to realizing that it's expressed in 50 different ways and 50 different traditions and that's the thing about learning uh, about so many of these areas is that there are there are certain kind of perennial themes that run through instructional and kind of like education and even philosophical writing Mm -hmm. about what makes people connect with ideas, what makes people retain information. And they're very simple, you know, and I I hope that they came through in the book. It's, you know, got to connect personally with the content. It has to be presented in meaningful chunks. It has to have relevance, you know, to any number of, of kind of real world scenarios. And that that's exactly what we can put into practice in our own classrooms and kind of digital learning environments. I was just rereading uh, the learning pyramid part, and mm. I, <laughs> <laughs> we totally. Because I, I actually, I think Char, you and I went to uh, the what you would call it information. Emergent. Yes, emergent. Thank you. At the same time, and this was like the number one thing I took from. Emergent. I know, me too. <laughs> it broke my heart. I learned that it was a bunch of crap. Yeah. So but can we? Was, yeah. Can we explain what we're talking about for? Yeah. So the learning pyramid, it's figure 4-1, if you would like to refer to the book, which I'm sure you have in front of you. Page, page 40. I do have no, it no, in front no. of me. Oh, yes, page 40, yeah. Um, but it's about um, how people retain what they, what you're teaching. And so it's got this little pyramid at the top. It's like they retain 10% of what they read, 20% of what they hear, 30% of what they see, blah, blah, blah. And then 90% of what they say and do is an activity, right? So the idea is that the more active and engaging you can make it. And if they become the teacher, then they have learned the material. And it like, I remember it striking me as like, oh my God, I have to redo everything that I've done. I have to be the guide on the side for everything they've got to teach themselves. And I remember at Emory going through some very bizarre, like active learning exercises where you like make up these ridiculous, you know, like scenarios in which people have to discover how to use Boolean operators on their own or something like that. Um, but so what Shard is, she pretty much said, well, I went and tried to find the evidence behind this, which is brilliant, and found that there really wasn't one. The people that made the pyramid have no idea how they got the information, <laughs> can't reproduce it. Um, 
And she just goes on to say, you know, this isn't right for every scenario that right. every single step of the pyramid has validity and it all depends on the context. And like, it was so nice to hear that, that I don't have to try and create active learning exercises for how to use and, and you know, like to make people yeah. discover it on their own or whatever. Um, so, yeah, just it, and it's like two pages long in the whole book and it totally blew my mind. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny that you bring this one up in particular because, you know, I'm, I'm about to um, about to teach immersion for the first time this summer, the teacher track, which we both went through and in, in, in which the learning pyramid was was used. And it's funny because it's really important to have um, graphics and, and ways to convey the idea that, you know, there are, are opportunities to teach outside of a lecture style like that can be really revelatory for some people but then for those who are a little more experienced in instruction perhaps hearing that exactly what you just said not everything has to be some kind of wonky crazy conceptual like problem-based learning activity like that can be just as liberating to say don't try to force your content into a constructivist or an active box that it doesn't want to fit into if that's not your strength you know right um the, the personal strength discovery part of it is, I think, really critical and very empowering um, for anyone. I felt like that was really one of the most important things that you wanted to get at in this book is discover what your own mm-hmm. strengths are as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I really felt like, I mean, we were talking about how much of your person, I feel like a lot of your personality came through in the book because you talk so much about your your experience and how you've applied these different concepts to your experience that I feel like I have a picture of you as what, what you would be like as a teacher in the classroom because your style came through so much in the writing and that makes, that in turn makes it a, a great example of, you know, here's how you can put yourself uh, put your own strengths into your instruction in the, in the same way that that I think you did in the the writing of this, and I hope that made sense. But <laughs> but um, uh, just just the style of the book, I felt like was a, a great example of how you can put yourself into instructional content and and have it make sense because you're discovering your own strengths, and that that in turn, of course, is is a lot of the subject matter of the book as well. And with those strengths, that she also she being Char, also talk, Char, you also <laughs> talked about, um, we're so used to talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you also talked about the um, the educational technologies, the instructional mm. technologies that are available. And I feel sometimes we're so pressured to use those technologies when, yes, yeah. yeah, sometimes they do fit the need of what we're trying to, um, the end goal in the class. But I feel like sometimes we're trying to, we force it and we don't necessarily need the you know, uh, instant response systems or whatever they're called in the classroom. We can do something. That's like my personal anti-example. <laughs> you know, but not everyone does. So They're great if you're trying to teach 200 students something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are, but then, you know, if you've got eight, everyone's kind of like wanting to whack you with the clicker. Exactly. You know, it's like... Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, I, that's a great point about instructional technology. It's another kind of like, it's basically like liberating ourselves from these myths that oppress us in the classroom it's like you don't have to do this and that with every new tool under the sun you don't have to have everything be quote-unquote active you know engaged critical discussion is just as active as an activity that you're having people do in small groups like to to reinvent some boolean wheel it's like you know what i mean 
Um, I guess that was my big takeaway when I went to immersion is, is that there isn't one way isn't the right way. It's, Ooh, yeah. it's, it's just not, I mean, I just remember we were all going through the learning styles and um, our comfort levels and just, you would think all of us would be these very outgoing, active, but no, I mean, we had the people who, who weren't the, weren't interested in the active learning. And um, I think that's, that kind of comes up with the online aspect as well. And I'm not sure you did go into the whole e-learning aspect in the book. And I'll be honest, I, it's, I, I don't remember exactly some of the points that you made, but I mean, do you find that you're using some of the things you talked about when it, when it comes to your instructional design that you're doing with your e-learning activities as well? Yeah, and it's, you know what, in the, um, where I am now in, at Claremont, there's very little about what I do that has actively to do with e-learning, like, in a, you know, a completely mm-hmm. online environment, or even barely coming into the hybrid area, like, it's just, it's an incredibly face-to-face, seminar-based culture, so, you know, there, we, we created digital learning objects, we have, you know, videos and we use LibGuides extensively, but it all is in support of the of the face to face interaction, you know. But but absolutely yes. I mean all of these things transfer. And for me, the important part um, in terms of e learning is to always remember that to keep people's attention, you have to have this kind of like balance between engaged content and and really streamlined well well chunked content you know what i mean mm-hmm. so it's it's like you can't you can't ever lose that that balance of i'm presenting you with information but i'm ca- capturing your attention i'm presenting you with you know it just is right. people people can't people don't stay with our content for very long unless it's really skillfully conveyed mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah so that that's kind of more of the relevant stuff for me in terms of instructional design is like the design principles are really key, as well as, as having that persona come through if possible. Um, so just to keep people with you, uh, if that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's when it gets all kind of dog and pony. Like, I, I, prefer, um, I prefer face-to-face with the work that I'm doing at the colleges because it, you're just, you know, you're, you're connecting with the learning mode that people really understand here. Um, in a different context, it would it would probably be different. You know, people would be more willing to participate in online learning communities, but that's not the way students expect to learn at my colleges. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus, you have to think about your resources that are available. A huge land grant well, institution. You know, they're going to probably have to rely on us more online resources. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's odd to transition. You know, this wholly to this environment. It's. I mean, uh, the change from Berkeley is quite. You know quite jarring in that way, but also really cool. I mean, I, I went to college at a small institution. Mm-hmm. I went to read it, and it's neat to try to figure out how all this stuff kind of kind of pertains to that that level of, of focused intensity um, in a seminar class. It's, it's a totally different world. One of the things you had talked about throughout the book, Char, was your what's in it for me principle. Yes. The W-I-I-F-M. I think you even <laughs> gave it that acronym at one point. <laughs> Um, can you speak a little bit more about the what's in it for me process? Sure. Our okay, principle, so I guess it is. What's in it for me is this kind of idea that is bandied about in a lot of different contexts having to do with marketing and teaching and learning. And basically, it's the idea that if you want people to listen to you, you have to tell them why they should mm-hmm. um, and in a way that can speak to their intrinsic self-interest. Uh, and that can either be taken in kind of a negative light uh, in terms of, you know, they're 
people are selfish beings. They they won't listen to me unless I'm, I'm giving them basically a cookie. But but it's more important to say I have considered what this instruction, what this kind of like content, what this learning opportunity can actually do for you, learner. You know. So I'm going to tell you basically right up front as a way that I can help you engage with what I'm about to do or you know what we can learn in this together. What you're going to walk away with. You know, right. what assignment is this going to support? What technical skills is it going to help you build? What are you going to be able to do better once you leave this classroom or leave this online learning environment that you couldn't, you know, that you maybe didn't even know about before? So you're basically challenging people to be right in the moment with you and say, all right, so if you listen up, if you participate with me, you know, if you engage in this, this is the outcome. Right. And you, it forces you to be really succinct and like really clear about what you're trying to accomplish and it's always in terms of the learner. You know, this is not an exercise to improve your ability to reflect on teaching. It's an exercise right. to, you know, to, to send somebody away with a useful piece of information or a concept or a skill. I am such a believer in this this concept. Um, this is something that I try really hard to incorporate into my own teaching. Mm-hmm. I've done things like put the learning objectives up on you know, on a PowerPoint slide at the beginning of class, say, this is what I think you need to know in order to do your assignment. And I know I've talked about some of this stuff before on the podcast. Um, Last semester, I had a student ask me at the beginning of class, so are you going to do, like, just a general library overview, or are we talking about our assignment? And I just, I wanted to hug her for asking that question, because it let me say, no, I'm going to talk about your literature review assignment that's due in three weeks or whatever it was, and I'm going to show you exactly the steps you need to go to. And I repeated that that question to all of the following sections of that class. I was like, somebody asked me previously, is this going to be general? Is this going to be about the assignment? So... Um, this is something that I've been trying to to keep a really sharp focus on for a long time in my own teaching. And I think it makes a huge difference in your classes if you can be really upfront about it with the students. This I know this is, this is the thing you have to accomplish. I'm going to show you what I think you need to know about how to accomplish that. I think that does more than just about anything else to get the attention of, of a group of of unmotivated undergraduates. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, another thing that I've been doing lately, in because I do have smaller classes now, um, is is actually asking every single participant in the room to basically say what to to uh, articulate what's in it for them, right? So, so uh, especially this works really well in drop-in workshops at Claremont. We're trying to kind of revitalize our drop-in instruction program, and we're you know playing around with with topics um, from kind of like general research skills up to specific technology tools like Evernote and Dropbox and things like that and Zotero. And I'm doing a lot of those kind of like uh, technology focused sessions and we've got, you know, room full of people. Some are graduate students, some are faculty, some are undergrads and we'll just go around the room and say, all right, so why did you actually come to this workshop and what do you want to get out of it? And I'll write every single one of those on the board and make sure that I hit every single point by the end of the workshop. And so it's completely, it's completely customized to the needs of the participants. And it also allows them to see what each other can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. You know, cause if you have advanced Evernote users, um, this is a direct example from a recent class, advanced Evernote users with like thousands of notes from their graduate study, who basically she became like a co-facilitator with me. She was so good, you know, 
at using Evernote. So I was able to draw that out of her in that in that moment of saying, so what's in it for you? Why are you here? And, and re- she really wanted to know were, were organization strategies to work with this tool that she had literally overloaded, you know, from from using it so much. Um, and then the rest of the participants were able to hear her like in practice strategies as she got to the point of, of coming up with a few new tricks for herself. So that was really really cool and that can be used in you know so many different contexts to actually ask people to kind of crowdsource their own their own purpose for being there and I found that really sorry Anna go ahead uh, I found that really helps like because I've actually been doing the exact same thing with our workshops mm-hmm. and I do the same and I what I noticed was like people kept showing up to like the general and no workshops but they had like three basic kind of categories of needs Mm-hmm. So we were able, and like now we teach different workshops for the people. That's cool. Um, so yeah, what it is, really not only helps during the class, but afterwards to help refine for the next time around. That's nice, yeah. Anna, I learned the the put all of your what's in it for me stuff on the board before class or the beginning of class. I learned that from you. I learned it from watching you, Anna. WIFM, me! (laughs) And also, like, I think a great point about that is it increases instructor accountability. Um, You know, because if you you ask people to write down some kind of thing at the beginning of a session that's not a question they want answered, the questions can kind of disappear. But if you if you have them out in the open, then you're kind of you're creating a structure to take yourself back to those needs. Over and over again. Putting your credibility up there on the board. (laughs) Absolutely. And if you can't get to something, it's awesome to be able to say, I'll follow up with you on that. Or I don't don't know the answer. That's a great moment of vulnerability that that you can bring out. And I think it takes it from just like an undergraduate sitting down and being like, oh, I just have to go through this class, blah, 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 to this person is going to tell me things that I need to know. Mm -hmm. And if I have questions, I know that she's going to answer them and be responsible. Sure. Yeah. I've started to do the, because I've always kind of, and I've, I've just started to do the what's in it for me with the sessions that I do. Um, I tend to do more um, kind of emerging technologies, and it's a lot of um, older retired people that come in and kind of, you know, we're going over Facebook, going over Delicious, going over some of these tools, these internet tools that are out there. And I just started to do the what's in it for me, because they come in, they know it, they kind of already have a general, you know, uh, a genuine interest on, on the topic. And so now what I've been doing is I've been talking about what do they want to learn in the beginning, but then at the end, I'm like, okay, what have you, what have we learned? And what are you going to take away? What are you going to do with it? And what's been interesting about that is it kind of sandwiches, they got what they wanted, and then maybe some of these extra things that they never really thought they would get. It's almost turned into this peer, um, this, it's this discussion group because someone wanted to use Delicious as a place for to share recipes with this cooking group that she has. And so they all went into like, oh, we could do this. You could set up as a group and then all of you could share your recipes with each other. And it was like, I mean, I just felt like the, the orchestra was going, like, it was like this <laughs> lovely moment. So I've kind of like tried to make it like a full circle, like the what's in it for me. Okay, now, did you get what you wanted? And if not, kind of what Char was saying, it's, you can always come back and um get back to them if you if you have they haven't gotten what they wanted um and something i also i've been doing is i've been throwing all my presentations up on slideshare because they love slides i don't i mean i try to get away from powerpoint as much as possible and but again it's something that they enjoy they like having the um visuals there is i'll go onto that slideshare and i'll follow up with them 
via that site saying someone had a question about this this is the answer to it so they can just go to that site and find out you know answer questions I couldn't answer at that moment for them I wanted to um, to kind of extend this idea of what's in it for me like beyond one specific session and I what I've been trying to do I think at my new position um, when I meet a new group of students is to engage them with um, with kind of the broader context of what they're going to learn like way into the future. And I always kind of tried to do this at, at Berkeley, but I found a new kind of narrative hook that I think really works, um, at least with my students, which is to really consider from a critical information literacy perspective, their own privilege, uh, right, as, as students to information. Like, so this, it's basically a way to say, all right, so here you are at these fancy colleges, you have access to a lot of information that you won't have after you're done. So what are you, you know, what are you going to do about it? Like, how are you going to use this right now? Do you know um, the landscape of information that you are privy to now that's going to disappear when you're no longer institutionally affiliated? Let's talk about why that's a reality. Let's talk about how that's going to impact you post-graduation. You know, as you're trying to get into grad school, as you're working in a field, what are you going to do with these skills when when the resources at your disposal are, are different, you know? So that, that tends to really snap people like into this, into this new space of listening um, that helps them really, I think, reflect a little bit more clearly on what, <laughs> what the experience of being a researcher in college, what that's going to look like respected to what it's going to look like afterwards, um, if that makes any sense. So what's in it for them is understanding that context in a, in a lifelong sense. That has never occurred to me to bring up with a class, and I really like that idea, especially given that I work with journalism students so much, mm -hmm. and research is going to be such a big part of their lives. I mean, whatever whatever they do with a journalism de degree is likely to involve information seeking of some kind, you For know, sure. whether it's PR yeah. or, or, you know, uh, traditional journalism or whatever. Um, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, we set up a false, you know, a false sense of information access if we don't teach them that, that a lot of it's going to go away, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the dangers of, of this idea of information literacy instruction that doesn't have a critical component to it is that, is that, you know, you're kind of setting people up for disappointment after they, after they've graduated, if they master these tools and the tools disappear and they don't have open access alternatives at their disposal, then, you know, what have we done other than give them a, a window for four years and then send them out into the and world without them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Slam. See ya. <laughs> so, yeah, it works really well. It makes people um, listen up, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's funny. I've always talked about the first half of it as like, oh, my God, as college students, you have access to everything in the world at your fingertips. But I, I guess part of it's because I'm science and like most of the people that are science majors end up doing research yeah. so they yeah that window never fully closes but at the same time you're you're kind of encouraging an ethic of openness among students if they can understand that that they're paying for this stuff and that actually there's a lot of yeah. stuff that you don't have to pay for and it's just it's good in many contexts you know so if you publish in the future if, you, if you're going to do anything like that you might want to think about strategies for making that that content free and open to the world as well yeah, that's definitely a graduate level discussion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one like I always wish that I could talk about because when we talk about like how do you know what the best journals in your field are and like how do you get access to them and how do authors end up publishing all that stuff. 
mm-hmm. but I almost never have enough time to talk about that because, you know, I, I found a lot of grad students like don't even know the major databases for their discipline. Yeah. Even yeah. when they get there. So <sighs> do any of y'all work with students that produce like theses or other capstone projects mm-hmm. really regularly? Um, I think that at that level, it can be a great discussion. Like if you are working with a senior seminar group or an honors group or something, they, um, I have found here that it's a very uh, good kind of like scenario to introduce the idea of information privilege and open access and, um, you know, hopefully feeding into an institutional repository or something like that. Uh, So that can be really, have a lot more meaning if it becomes this is what's going to happen to you afterwards <laughs> you know? right yeah again what's in it for me yeah <laughs> we've um we talked a little bit about uh we kind of touched on the instructional technology stuff a little bit and i um i, I wonder if you would be interested in talking a little bit about how you approached the the teaching technologies chapter in your book because i i have it open in front of me I, one of the first things you say is that you you dreaded writing the chapter because you know everything is changing so fast and it's hard to it's hard to kind of encapsulate uh, uh, anything coherent about teaching technologies in a book form because they they change so fast would you would you mind talking a little bit about what your approach was to that Sure. Well, did you hear me sigh when you said teaching technology? <laughs> I, I heard it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's like my, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite areas, but it's also one of the most difficult, I think, to talk about, to, you know, teach um, about, it, because like you said, it's a shifting target. Like there, there are just so many directions to go with instructional technology, but I think the most important one and the one I really tried to emphasize is customization, make it your own. Don't feel compelled to use anything that doesn't work for you ever, you know, to see technology in the classroom or, you know, behind or outside of the classroom as a tool to achieve specific ends and never a bell or a whistle. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different kind of things in that chapter that are, they're basically like frameworks to help people build insight and experience into specific tools that could be considered instructional technology, which, by the way, is everything from a projector to a pencil to, you know, uh, Skype. And and just like, here's how you can approach building your knowledge and your experience with these tools. Here's what they actually might accomplish for learners, which is the, you know, really the point. And then reject or incorporate as needed, right? So it's a it's an, the idea of instead of feeling overwhelmed by all of the things you have to learn, quote unquote, have to learn, just giving yourself a framework for learning about the things that might be useful to you um, or not. You know? And there, there's a word that I really love. The, the word that I use kind of repeatedly in the chapter is the idea of the, the technology affordance. What is this? What is this technology? Let me do. Uh, what does it help me do? And that's the way I'm going to look at it. And I liked that you, uh, obviously, I'm a big open source geek like yourself. I liked that you you talk so much about free and open source stuff. 
you know, I think the advantage of, of librarians being fluent with the free options is that the the investment, well, I was going to say the investment is a lot less. I mean, that's sort of stupidly literally true, but it, it lets it gives you a lot more chance to play if you're kind of conversant with the, uh, the free options out there because you can try out different stuff. I mean, you can do what you're talking about here a lot easier if you, uh, you know, what do I need? to be able to do and if you've got four different free options you can try them each out for a week and see what's working best as opposed to like getting your library to buy something for and sure. then you're kind of stuck with it yeah um, it's awesome to just set up channels to help yourself learn about new things or like you said evaluate or play around with with ideas and one of the most i think useful things that people can do is just create a list of things they hear of and set aside like 30 minutes a week to visit the website you know, click around two second for two seconds and just see if it appeals. If it doesn't appeal, check it off, get rid of it. Don't let it weigh on your conscience. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So just, it's just, you can be like really brutal with learning technologies. Um, just say, you know what? I don't care about you. Um, I know, I know that I'm fine without you and you can just get lost. Um, and that's, that's really great. Again, empowering, liberating. And, and by the way, um, if you want to, read some IM opening information about how undergraduate students perceive technology in the classroom. Um, this last year's uh, Educause, I think, what is it called? Okay, I have to do like one moment's searching, but it's um, students of undergraduate, undergraduate students in learning technologies or something like that. We'll get the, the actual title here in a moment, but um, basically, one of the parts of this huge survey and cross-institutional survey of thousands and thousands of learners is to ask them what learning technologies work for you and what's the most popular, um, you know, here in 2012 is the technology that students think professors use best is a projector. Like literally <laughs> that's, that's the, the, favored, awesome. the favored learning technology in the undergraduate classroom is a projector. And why, why do you think? Because the, the teachers actually know how to use it well. They, they mastered the project, you know. It, but when you start like shoving crazy new tools in, like from every angle, students are like, "Oh God!" Like that, you know. Bless their heart, they're trying to use Prezi, and it's it's making me want to throw up. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the. It can be a real eye opener to say, "All right, so it's just really about learn using these things well, or using them in a way that is just helping me plan." you know, or organize or communicate. Yeah, it's like it's need-driven rather than, oh, I heard about this new thing and I have to figure out how to use it right. in my own. Yeah, I always felt that about like Second Life, you oh. know, and you talk about it very briefly in the book, but that was to me the most clear example of like every library was like, how do we get Second Life to work for us? Because it was like the buzzword. Like, the an answer ended up being, you kind of don't. Right. And it's, it's really fascinating to think about all the things that have come and gone that way, you know, and what comes for one person goes, you know, for another in a different way. It's just so personal. Yeah. It's well, so personal. Let me, let me say a couple of things. First, um, first of all, if you can find a link to that survey, we will yeah. put that in the show notes, if you wouldn't mind um, uh, 
getting your hands on that. Is it that's Educause stuff is usually just free out there on the web, yes, right? Is yeah, it, okay. totally free. Um, okay, great. It's called the ECAR Study of Undergraduate oh, Students. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've we've participated. Georgia State has participated in that a couple of years. I don't think we did this year, but we've we've done that in previous years. Yeah, it's a great it's a great thing to read every year. If you've got if you want to read one report or about learning technologies, read that. That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> the other thing was I wanted to mention last week. Uh, my department, the sub, all of the subject librarians, we had our annual subject librarians retreat, and uh, basically that means we have an all-day meeting, and we usually do lots of training stuff, lots of learning stuff, and some group acti- group planning activities for the year. One of the highlights for me this year was one of our psychology professors who specializes in uh, educational theory came over and spoke to us, and he's really into instructional technology. And he, he was just a terrific speaker. It was really interesting and really fun hearing him talk. And he talked about, I mean, this is kind of the same stuff that we've said already. He was talk, talking about some of the stuff he does in the cloud classroom. He talked about the flipped classroom model and um, how he uses technology in his teaching and things like that. And he was talking about how, um, and we again, we've kind of already said this, how so often we, we latch on to technology and it's like, how can I use this in the classroom? And that's absolutely backwards from the way that we should mm-hmm. be looking at it. And, um, you know, it's like you said, we should be looking at what do I need to be able to do and what tools will let me do that? And so he talked about how he approached he approached it with that in mind, and some of the specific tools that he had been using in the classroom. It was really interesting. Um, his name is Chris Good. I don't know if he's uh, published anything that that uh, we can link to, but I'll take a look. So yeah, that's. I mean, I think that that idea of, of backward design and dismantling um, dismantling the assumptions that we are actually bringing to our classrooms or to our interaction with technology can be really great. Um, just like, what, what am I assuming here? What can I, what can I stop assuming if I just take a step back and, and consider what's going on? So one thing I wanted to talk about before we run out of time was part two of your book, yeah, um, which yeah. is, yeah, the, the user model. Cause I think, um, I mean, there's a lot in this book that I definitely walked away with, but probably what's going to end up having the biggest impact for me personally um, it's just this four-part thing for people who haven't read it, um, but about engaging with your instruction and the steps of preparing for it. Um, and then most importantly, this is the part I always forget. So understand, structure, engage, and then reflect. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that like, I think gets overlooked a lot because we're like, okay, that class is over. Great job on me. Now it's time for the next classes that I have to prepare for. I've got three more this week. And um, some of your examples I loved of just how you you write down on post-it notes what worked, what didn't work, and then store it, organizing it, and then reflecting <laughs> on it. <laughs> it was yeah. So like that's my goal for this next fall is I if I can have. I'm like, what did what was this for? These notes I wrote <laughs> in this folder anyway. Yeah. I think, I like, think that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're librarians, right? Why not bring an awesome organization structure to our teaching? Like, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's just kind of a no-brainer. We are all capable of it. It's It can be so wonderful to not lose things and to remember what you did. And, you know. 
I think that and just the general concept that just taking a little bit of time outside of the teaching schedule, outside of our other things to reflect, to find, you know, find new information, look at open source stuff, to look at our old classes and just that extra, like even half an hour a week can make Mm -hmm. such a big difference. I've been trying to, I'm, I'm sorry, I, um, I've been trying to do some of that over the summer. It's, um, it's, it's hard to do because when you don't have the immediate demand of a class coming up, there's always new stuff coming up, you know, uh, other stuff going on rather. And right after you teach, it's hard for me to do because I, after I'm done either teaching a class or giving a presentation or whatever, I just feel wrung out like a sponge and mm-hmm. I just have to, my I feel like I've got nothing left in my brain so it's really it's challenging to do that. I know that it's worthwhile but it's it's tough to do. Uh, I think that that it's definitely something that I confront to that feeling of being wrung out, you know, but perhaps ironically it's the best time. You know, you're you're really yeah. honest, you're yeah. really terse. It's not <laughs> you know, you don't you don't have to write the next great novel you you basically just take a minute to say like can I learn anything about what just went wrong and write in in a way that just it's just like mental notes you know and um unbelievably just those three quick reflections at the end of a class can be extraordinarily useful um and I've actually got links to some template kind of things that are on my slideshare account that I can share about how to use the three question reflection method as as a way to kind of take care of that that reflection piece really quickly and easily at the end of a session or whatever. Um, and that seems to be of all of the, the kind of templates that I designed for this book, that really seems to be the one that, that people are able to adopt and implement um, with regularity. And I think to good effect, um, it's a very low impact kind of exercise. Yeah, please get us that link and we'll, we'll yeah, make sure, sure to put that in the show notes. One thing I've done, and this is not practical in every circumstance, but I, I always have a paper outline that I take to class with me just so I have some bullet points to mm-hmm. to glance at and, you know, while I'm teaching and go, okay, what did I want to cover next? And I've got, you know, something to fall back on there. And I will occasionally stop class in the middle and go, wait, let me write that down. That's a good example or that's a good, you know, that's a good question. I want to, I'm glad you asked that. Let me make a note here so I remember to include that next time I teach this. It's not, I mean, you can't stop and do 10 minutes of reflection in the in front of a class but but I have actually stopped and jot down notes and then I keep my my out that I taught from this time I will just stick it back in the folder for that class mm-hmm. and then when I'm prepping for the class I open it up and I've got you know the the paper notes in there I'll go oh yeah what was that thing I was going to do so I have occasionally just jotted down a note while I'm teaching sure yeah and I I I think, I hope anyway, that students sort of appreciate the, the authenticity of those moments and they don't just, you know, think I'm a dumbass for stopping no, to do no. that in the middle of class. But I think they probably, I mean, even if it's not processing like super immediately for them, it shows that you're engaged with what you're doing. I think so. That's that's sort of the try the the, the spin that I try to to put on my teaching. You know, I'm, I, you know, hey, look, I'm I'm, you know, some of this stuff is is coming up as we talk about it, and you know, we're discovering some of this stuff as we go. So I hope that's what they take away from from moments like that, because I have a lot of moments like that. Well, I think that anytime you can share with people that you're going to try to do a good job, and the next time you're going to try to do better, is is really great, <laughs> a great thing to try to convey. It it basically puts you in an invested attitude and position, you know, in front of them. And it, 
and again, it's kind of a trick, but the more, um, the more of your heart you kind of put on your sleeve, the less people, uh, are likely to stomp on it in an interesting way. Um, so it's, it's kind of a paradox, but I have found it to be absolutely, you know, reliable in teaching scenarios is if you, if you use personality, if you show people that you care about what's going on, they're less likely to, um, to check out or be abusive in that situation. Yeah. It's like they're on your side at that Absolutely. Point. You're winning yeah. them over. And it's again, like the tricks can be so important to, to actual, you know, on lasting learning. Uh, it's, you can reduce things to a lot of kind of, like I said earlier, dog and pony, but, but all of that can become like things to bolster the affective experience of the classroom. And those, those are very important to us who have limited learning interactions often with our communities to be able to, to increase that memorable aspect of what we're doing. It's, I've almost like thought about including like little mistakes, you know, yeah. just to like, to have that moment of like, I'm human too, you know, so that they, yeah, yeah they empathize with what I'm going through and how it mirrors what they go through. So I like often. this idea of creating mistakes. <laughs> I hear more about that. I love it. Um, well, I, mean, I rarely, I, just, I rarely need to manufacture them. I just end up not pre-searching whatever my topic is. That's great. <laughs> and it's always like this dangerous moment of I have absolutely no idea if I'm going to fail or not. But I figure the best I, part about that is what pops up on the autofill in the kitchen oh, master. I have had the most unbelievably <laughs> offensive and hilarious. <laughs> Snafus with that, and I just like I'm just like bringing on. No, I was not trying to to type sex trade in this middle analysis <laughs> class, you know. And it's funny, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. just anything that can possibly be. Yeah, you're like, like, how could this possibly like, sexualized? And that yeah, there it is. Yeah. Oh, it's the internet, you know. People, people are interested in that. No, it's just it's just like make it make it funny, make it humorous, personal, vulnerable, and any even if it's just like the tiniest smidge can really enliven um, an otherwise dead interaction. Yeah. And sometimes I, I worry that I'm being too informal, that they don't see me as like uh, someone who actually knows what they're doing <laughs> anymore. But do you want to hear my, my crowning embarrassment moment from the last uh, time? Yes. Of course we <laughs> right, do. What, so what kind of question I, is that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you get kind of stressed out, like you have like a whole bunch of classes in a given week and you're, you're just kind of like trying to hold it together. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. I had this session that I was co-teaching with, um, uh, an awesome colleague of mine and we were, we'd actually visited this seminar classroom to do kind of an intro to how we were going to work with the class and a few preliminary tools that they could work with. And, and like uh, I was so off my, my rocker that my co-presenter had picked up like this remote for the classroom and had a laser light pointer in it. And he's like, oh, I'm trying to find this laser. There, there must be a laser in here. And I, at the top of my lungs, out of nowhere, I said, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole class was like, that was crazy. It was kind of amazing. It was like, it came out of nowhere, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think that might be the like, the like, don't, don't, uh, don't imitate that, that particular strategy. But it, it really showed me that I uh, was stressed out. You know what I mean? Like that probably wasn't the, the best thing to say at that particular moment. But uh, on the other hand, you got their attention, right? <laughs> yeah. For, for yeah. at least that moment. <laughs> yeah, I also got the faculty members' attention. I and think, the release to boot. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, we are uh, we're we're coming up on an hour. Is there is there anything else that we want to uh, to talk about that we haven't yet? Man, there's like I want to discuss every page of this book. I wish we had time. Y'all are, like, blowing me up right now. I can't even believe this. It's so nice. I mean, I worked... Okay, here's the deal. Like, I worked really hard on this book, and in the middle of doing it, I was like, this is just totally meaningless. Like, I hate this project, you know? And uh, But in the end, it seems to have been something that people can find useful, which is unbelievably, like, just very meaningful to me. Um, so thanks for having me on. It, it, was a, <laughs> it was a long slog, so thanks for reading it. My God! <laughs> I'm glad you made it through the process, Sean. Well, we we certainly we certainly feel like your effort was worth it because this is this is one of the best books about library teaching that I have read in a long time. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, y'all, um, it's it's been awesome. And thanks again for having me on. I uh, will be listening in the future. So we wanted to uh, talk about some listener mail that we got. This is actually from two months ago, since I wasn't in last month. So thanks for saving it for me, guys. Sure. <laughs> uh, but one of the comments we got is from our good friend, Dana Longley, the Wiggle Room podcaster. Um, her comment was, one discussion on, uh, one question on discovery layers. When student get, sorry, once students get a taste of and get good at using it, what are the chances they'll ever want to go back to using the subject-specific databases, especially in this age of increasingly multi multidisciplinary topics limited time, and ever-evolving database interfaces. I fear that this is the largest danger of discovery layers, although I'm not totally convinced it's even a danger for most. In other words, teaching students library systems in the first place is kind of meaningless since these are not the tools they'll be using out in the real world. Your thoughts? We talked to, I feel like we talked about that last question a little bit today just by chance. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. library tools in the real world. I'll, my my first thought when I, I read uh, this question about what you know are they going to ever go back to the subject specific databases? A couple of drawbacks to the discovery layers. One is it's hard to sift through, and I guess this is really both kind of elements of the same thing. It's hard to sift through all of the irrelevant stuff a lot of the time. I mean, it's it's good for kind of surface layer research and just get a few things on your topic, but once they get into more advanced research. I always feel like they're going to need to go into that that silo a little bit. You know, my mm -hmm. communication students need to go into the uh, communication mass media complete or whatever, just because it is specialized in their field. And I think there are advantages to using a really broad search tool, but I think there are advantages to using a really specialized one as well. In that it 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 focuses more effectively on the field that you're researching and. I mean, a lot of the time it does make sense to use a multidisciplinary tool, but but I think it's a case of the right tool for the right job. Yeah, and I think um, I have a couple of thoughts about this. Um, one is that I think this is where the discipline-specific classes come in handy. So seeing a person multiple times throughout their um, student career so that maybe the first time you see them, you say, hey, look at all this stuff that you have access to and look how easy it is to search. And at some point, they're going to over, they're going to outgrow that, and like Jason said, need to have more subject-specific information. And that brings me to my second point, which is that uh, I get to plug the research that I'm doing right now. Uh, I've been talking to um, seniors, graduating honors honors seniors, about their research process and what they actually use and what they've found helpful. 
um, and I'm hoping to tie it back to what we do and how we can be more effective in helping them. But um, a surprising number of them talked about subject-specific databases, and without fail, everyone that used them and preferred them, it was because they had that second-tier instruction. So they said, you know, I had like an institutional research methods class, or institutional, whatever. I had an upper-level research methods class. A librarian came in, and he really showed me the right tools to use for my topics, and that's what I've been using ever since. Um, and a couple of people actually did talk about our uh, discovery layer and said, you know, I just had so much. It was so big that it was really hard to search for stuff. So I see it as a good beginning, but hopefully, I think if they are good students, they'll come to that place where the information need is more than the discovery layer can handle. Um, if we can reach them at that point, then we can teach them how to kind of move beyond. And that's the real challenge is, is talking to them <laughs> at that point of need and getting involved in those uh, appropriate classes. So that's my thought. Anna, you want to add anything? Nope. Okay. <laughs> You know, we, we probably, we could really answer Dana's uh, uh, comment with our second comment from uh, Andrew Heights, kind of addresses a lot of the stuff that Dana's asking. He says, thanks yeah. for doing an episode on this topic, talking about the Discovery Layers episode again. Uh, I work at a community college and deal with first-year students every day. Uh, we teach students that the hard work of research is evaluating the sources your search finds. Uh, the difference between a journal, chapter, e-resource, DVD, and special collection item are subtle to a first-year student, especially when the search returns over 200,000 results. Um, it's important to note these tools are not search engines with training wheels. The metaphor is more similar to the differences between a screwdriver and a hammer. What did I say? The right tool for the right job. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't learn to use a screwdriver by starting out on a hammer. I, I like that. I like mm -hmm. that metaphor a lot. Uh, the way one evaluates the results of a discovery layer is different, more complex than evaluating article database search results. And first-year students learning how to evaluate sources have trouble enough. So, I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I would just add to it that there is, you know, sometimes it is the right tool for that job. Um, and I think I've had upper-level students who had a really complex interdisciplinary topic especially where there just isn't that much mm -hmm. on it. And really the best place for them was uh, our discovery layer. But otherwise, I totally agree. <laughs> I think it's so much too, for, some time, for, that, for that kind of traditional first year student, um, it's almost too much information. It's too much coming at them. And I think that that makes it, it's almost like the information um, anxiety kind of sets in. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, and, you know, and maybe, but maybe on the other side of that, it helps them with that jumping off point on discerning between different resources. I don't know, you know, again, I, I, I have very little experience in that area, but it's, um, I know that I would be overwhelmed if I was getting book chapters and theses and, and dissertations and the whole nine yards in a simple search I was trying to do, but I'm not 18 anymore. <laughs> None of us are. That's probably a good thing. Uh, Andrew and Dana, thanks for leaving those comments. Um, if you're listening now and you have comments that you want to add uh, about this month's episode, please drop us a note uh, either to our email address, adlibinstruction at gmail.com, or just uh, leave a comment on the blog, adlibinstruction.blogspot. Dot com, and uh, we will be happy to respond appropriately to uh, any questions or comments you have. 
I think we'll close it up there, shall we? Uh, this has been episode, what, 36? Um, thanks again to Char Booth for joining us. Uh, we will have notes to everything that we can possibly think of that we talked about today in our show notes. Uh, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next month. Adventures in Library Instruction is produced by Rachel Borcher, Jason Puckett, and Anna Van Skoik. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. To subscribe, go to our website at adlibinstruction.blogspot.com. Leave comments and suggestions on the blog or email us at adlibinstruction at gmail.com. Our opening theme song is Dropping Out of School by Brad Sucks, and our closing theme is Higher Education by the Napoleon Blonapartes. Both are available at magnatune.com. Contact the library schools and the American Library Association. They are able to give you valuable advice.